0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford Beati IMMACULATI Part 1. 1. This is the saddest story I have ever heard. We had known the Ashburnhams for nine seasons of the town of Nauheim with an extreme intimacy, or rather with an acquaintanceship as loose and easy and yet as close as a good gloves with your hand. My wife and I knew Captain and Mrs. Ashburnham as well as it was possible to know anybody, and yet, in another sense, we knew nothing at all about them. This is, I believe, a state of things only possible with English people, of whom, till today, when I sit down to puzzle out what I know of this sad affair, I knew nothing whatever. Six months ago I had never been to England, and certainly I had never sounded the depths of an English heart. I had known the shallows." I don't mean to say that we were not acquainted with many English people, living as we perforce lived in Europe, and being, as we perforce were, leisured Americans, which is as much to say that we were un-American. We were thrown very much into the society of the nicer English. Paris, you see, was our home. Somewhere between Nice and Bordighera provided yearly winter quarters for us, and Nauheim always received us from July to September— You will gather from this statement that one of us had, as the saying is, a heart, and from the statement that my wife is dead, that she was the sufferer. Captain Ashburnham also had a heart, but whereas a yearly month or so at Nauheim tuned him up to exactly the right pitch for the rest of the twelve-month, the two months or so were only just enough to keep poor Florence alive from year to year. The reason for his heart was, approximately, Polo, or too much hard sportsmanship in his youth. The reason for poor Florence's broken years was a storm at sea upon our first crossing to Europe, and the immediate reasons for our imprisonment in that continent were doctor's orders. They said that even the short channel crossing might well kill the poor thing. When we all first met, Captain Ashburnham, home on sick leave from an India to which he was never to return, was thirty-three. Mrs. Ashburnham, Leonora, was thirty-one, I was thirty-six, and poor Florence thirty. Thus today Florence would have been thirty-nine, and Captain Ashburnham forty-two, whereas I am forty-five, and Leonora forty. You will perceive, therefore, that our friendship has been a young middle-aged affair, since we were all of us of quite quiet dispositions, the Ashburnhams being more particularly what in England it is the custom to call quite good people." They were descended, as you will probably expect, from the Ashburnham who accompanied Charles I to the scaffold, and as you must also expect with this class of English people, you would never have noticed it. Mrs. Ashburnham was a Poess. Florence was a hurlbird of Stamford, Connecticut, where, as you know, they are more old-fashioned than even the inhabitants of Cranford, England could have been. I myself am a dowel of Philadelphia, P.A., where, It is historically true there are more old English families than you would find in any six English counties taken together. I carry about with me, indeed, as if it were the only thing that invisibly anchored me to any spot upon the globe, the title deeds of my farm, which once covered several blocks between Chestnut and Walnut streets. These title deeds are of Wampum the grant of an Indian chief to the first Dowell who left Farnham in Surrey in company with William Penn. Florence's people, as is so often the case with the inhabitants of Connecticut, came from the neighborhood of Fordenbridge, where the Ashburn's place is. From there, at this moment, I am actually writing. You may well ask why I write, and yet my reasons are quite many. For it is not unusual in human beings who have witnessed the sack of a city or the falling to pieces of a people to desire to set down what they have witnessed for the benefit of unknown heirs, or of generations infinitely remote, or, if you please, just to get the sight out of their heads. Someone has said that the death of a mouse from cancer is the whole sack of Rome by the Goths, and I swear to you that the breaking up of our little four-square coterie was such another unthinkable event. "'Supposing that you should come upon us sitting together at one of the little tables in front of a clubhouse, let us say, at Hamburg, taking tea of an afternoon and watching the miniature golf, you would have said that, as human affairs go, we were an extraordinarily safe castle. We were, if you will, one of those tall ships with the white sails upon a blue sea.' one of those things that seem the proudest and the safest of all the beautiful and safe things that God has permitted the mind of men to frame. Where better could one take refuge? Where better? Permanence? Stability? I can't believe it's gone. I can't believe that that long, tranquil life, which was just stepping a minuet, vanished in four crashing days at the end of nine years and six weeks. Upon my word, yes, our intimacy was like a minuet, simply because on every possible occasion and in every possible circumstance we knew where to go, where to sit, which table we unanimously would choose, and we could rise and go, all four together, without a signal from any one of us, always to the music of the Kerr Orchestra, always in the temperate sunshine, or, if it rained, in discreet shelters. No, indeed, it can't be gone.' You can't kill a minuet, de la Cour. You may shut up the music book, close the harpsichord. In the cupboard and presses, the rats may destroy the white satin favors. The mob may sack Versailles. The Trianon must fall. But surely the minuet, the minuet itself, is dancing itself away into the furthest stars, even as our minuet of the Hessian bathing places must have stepped itself still. Isn't there any heaven where old beautiful dances, old beautiful intimacies prolong themselves? Isn't there any nirvana pervaded by the faint thrilling of instruments that must have fallen into the dust of wormwood, but that yet had frail, tremulous, and everlasting souls? No, by God, it's false. It wasn't a minuet that we stepped. It was a prison, a prison full of screaming hysterics. Tied down, so that they might not outsound the rolling of our carriage wheels as we went along the shaded avenues of the Taunus walled, and yet I swear by the sacred name of my Creator that it was true, it was true sunshine, the true music, the true splash of the fountains from the mouth, stone dolphins. for if for me we were four people with the same tastes, with the same desires, acting or no, not acting sitting here and there unanimously, isn't that the truth? If for nine years I have possessed a goodly apple that is rotten at the core, and discover its rottenness only in nine years and six months, less four days, isn't it true to say that for nine years I possessed a goodly apple? So it may well be with Edward Ashburnham, with Leonora, his wife, and with poor dear Florence. And if you come to think of it— "'Isn't it a little odd that the physical rottenness "'of at least two pillars of our four-square house "'never presented itself to my mind as a menace to its security? "'It doesn't so present itself now, "'though the two of them are actually dead. "'I don't know. "'I know nothing. "'Nothing in the world, the hearts of men. "'I only know that I am alone, horribly alone. "'No hearthstone will ever again witness for me friendly intercourse.' No smoking-room will ever be other than peopled with incalculable simulacra amidst smoke-wreaths. Yet in the name of God, what should I know if I don't know the life of the hearth and of the smoking-room, since my whole life has been passed in those places? The warm hearthside. Well, there was Florence. I believe that for the twelve years her life lasted, after the storm that seemed irretrievably to have weakened her heart. I don't believe that for one minute she was out of my sight. "'except when she was safely tucked up in bed "'and I should be downstairs "'talking to some good fellow or other "'in some lounge or smoking room "'or taking my final turn with a cigar "'before going to bed. "'I don't, you understand, blame, Florence, "'but how could she have known what she knew? "'How could she have got to know it, "'to know it so fully? "'Heavens! "'There doesn't seem to have been the actual time.' It must have been when I was taking my baths and my Swedish exercises, being manicured, leading the life I did of this sedulous, strained nurse. I had to do something to keep myself fit. It must have been then. Yet even that can't have been enough time to get the tremendously long conversations full of worldly wisdom that Lenora has reported to me since their deaths. And is it possible to imagine that during our prescribed walks in Nauheim— and the neighborhood she found time to carry on the protracted negotiations which she did carry on between Edward Ashburnham and his wife? And isn't it incredible that during all that time Edward and Leonora never spoke a word to each other in private? What is one to think of humanity? For I swear to you that they were a model couple. He was as devoted as it was possible to be without appearing fatuous, so well set up, with such honest blue eyes, such a touch of stupidity, such a warm good-heartedness, and she so tall, so splendid in the saddle, so fair. Yes, Leonora was extraordinarily fair, and so extraordinarily the real thing that she seemed too good to be true. You don't, I mean as a rule, get it all so superlatively together. To be the country family, to look the country family, to be so... "'appropriately and perfectly wealthy to be so perfect in manner, "'even just to the saving touch of insolence that seems to be necessary. "'To have all that and to be all that. "'No, it was too good to be true. "'And yet only this afternoon, talking over the whole matter, she said to me. "'Once I tried to have a lover, but I was so sick at the heart, "'so utterly worn out that I had to send him away. "'That struck me as the most amazing thing I'd ever heard.' She said, I was actually in a man's arms, such a nice chap, such a dear fellow. And I was saying to myself fiercely, hissing it between my teeth, as they say in the novels, and really clenching them together, I was saying to myself, now I'm for it, and I'll really have a good time for once in my life, for once in my life. It was in the dark, in a carriage coming back from a hunt ball. Eleven miles we had to drive. And then suddenly the bitterness of the endless poverty, of the endless acting. It fell on me like a blight. It spoilt everything. Yes, I had to realize that I had been spoilt even for the good time when it came. And I burst out crying, and I cried, and I cried for the whole eleven miles. Just imagine me crying. And just imagine me making a fool of the poor chap like that. It certainly wasn't playing the game, was it now? I don't know, I don't know. Was that last remark of hers the remark of a harlot, or... Is it what every decent woman, county family or not county family, thinks at the bottom of her heart, or thinks all the time for the matter of that? Who knows? Yet if one doesn't know at this hour and this day, at this pitch of civilization to which we have attained after all the preachings of all the moralists and all the teachings of all the mothers to all the daughters and secular secularum— "'But perhaps that is what all mothers teach all daughters, "'not with lips, but with the eyes, "'or with heart whispering to heart. "'And if one doesn't know as much as that "'about the first thing in the world, "'what does one know, and why is one here?' "'I asked Mrs. Ashburnham "'whether she had told Florence that, "'and what Florence had said, and she answered. "'Florence didn't offer any comment at all. "'What could she say? "'There wasn't anything to be said.' with the grinding poverty we had to put up with to keep up appearances, and the way the poverty came about, you know what I mean. Any woman would have been justified in taking a lover, and presents, too. Florence once said about a very similar position, she was a little too well-bred, too American to talk about mine, that it was a case of perfectly open writing, and the woman could just act on the spur of the moment. She said it in American, of course, but that was the sense of it. "'I think her actual words were "'that it was up to her to take it or leave it. "'I don't want you to think that I am writing "'Teddy Ashburnham down a brute. "'I don't believe he was. "'God knows perhaps all men are like that. "'For as I've said, what do I know, "'even of the smoking-room? "'Fellows come in and tell the most extraordinarily gross stories, "'so gross that they will positively give you a pain. "'And yet they'd be offended if you suggested "'that they weren't the sort of person "'you could trust your wife alone with.' and very likely they'd be quite properly offended, that is, if you can trust anybody alone with anybody. But that sort of fellow obviously takes more delight in listening to or in telling gross stories, more delight than in anything else in the world. They'll hunt languidly, and dress languidly, and dine languidly, and work without enthusiasm, and find it a bore to carry on three minutes' conversation about anything whatever, and yet when the other sort of conversation begins, they'll laugh and "'wake up and throw themselves about in their chairs. "'Then, if they so delight in the narration, "'how is it possible that they can't be offended, "'and properly offended at the suggestion "'that they might make attempts upon your wife's honour? "'Or again, Edward Ashburnham "'was the cleanest-looking sort of chap, "'an excellent magistrate, a first-rate soldier, "'one of the best landlords, so they say, in Hampshire, England. "'To the poor and to the hopeless drunkards, "'as I myself have witnessed, "'he was like a painstaking guardian,' "'and he never told a story that couldn't have gone into the columns of the field "'more than once or twice in all the nine years of my knowing him. "'He didn't even like hearing them. "'He would fidget and get up and go out to buy a cigar or something of that sort. "'You would have said that he was just exactly the sort of chap "'that you could have trusted your wife with. "'And I trusted mine, and it was madness. "'And yet again you have me.' If poor Edward was dangerous because of the chastity of his expressions, and they say that is always the hallmark of a libertine, what about myself? For I solemnly avow that not only have I never so much as hinted at an impropriety in my conversation in the whole of my days, and more than that, I will vouch for the cleanness of my thoughts and the absolute chastity of my life, at what, then, does it all work out?' Is the whole thing a folly and a mockery? Am I no better than a eunuch? Or is the proper man, the man with a right to existence, a a raging stallion forever neighing at his neighbor's womankind? I don't know, and there is nothing to guide us. And if everything is so nebulous about a matter so elementary as the morals of sex— what is there to guide us in the more subtle morality of all other personal contexts, associations, and activities? Or are we meant to act on impulse alone? It is all a darkness. This is the end of Part 1, 1 of The Good Soldier. Recording by Richard Grove.